So, Rebecca, you're going on sabbatical. You're uh, going to be leaving the country here for how many weeks? Uh, 72 days. 72 days. You're going to Europe, Eastern Europe, Southern, well, Southern Europe. Uh, I'm calling it skirting the Mediterranean. Okay. That's exciting. So you had to tell your clients this week. Uh, well, they've known. Some of them have known for a long time, but we, we did real goodbyes last week and this week. Yeah. It's how, exhausting. How'd that feel? It was tough. One client, I teared up before they did. We've been working together a really long time. Um, and their insurance is changing while I'm gone, so that was goodbye. Uh, so, yeah, it's quite a process. And it's kind of like I made this choice, you know? Like, it's not like anything has happened, so it feels even stranger. Are you going to see your clients again once once you get back to town? Yeah, I've got some people in the books for once I get back. It feels really weird to schedule for September at the end of May, but that's what I'm doing. Are they going to see other therapists? I have been very thorough, yeah. and I provided them with a list of many therapists, to all therapists who have agreed to take my clients while I'm gone, so people are willing to work short term. And then I also suggested Talkspace, if that felt like... A better option to just um, people just wanted to do a text-based relationship, but some people have refused. Like one person said to me, "Took me a year and a half to call you. <laughs> I don't feel like meeting anybody new." Yeah. So that's their choice. Yeah. I mean, I'm just imagining for myself. I don't think it's ever happened to me as a client, but if it did, I would imagine that I would. Just say, ah, I'll just take two months off. And I'll see you when you get back. Mm-hmm. Um, did did you? And you had some people like that too. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean, some people, you know, they travel during the summer. They're not worried. Other people thought they were going to feel that way, and then the crap hit the fan in the last few weeks, and now they're thinking about seeing somebody. So, yeah, I'm very curious to come back and find out what people did and how people did. Are you worried that they're going to see another therapist and like them better and then they'll realize that... Uh, I suck? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've had that worry or that hope with some people. Like, maybe there's someone that's a better fit for you. Interesting. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a... It is very strange, though, to hand people off. And, like, you know, there's... I just have had to say a lot, like, this person isn't going to be me. It's going to be someone else. And I've been in that role before where I've taken people's clients over break, their break, and it's always been very strange um, because they're really used to working with somebody else and are still planning on working with that person. And you're just this kind of gap filler. Right. Yeah. Well, I commend you for taking so much time off. It's so infrequent that therapists take any vacation time, I, I think, let alone that much vacation time because we often feel like we don't deserve it or that our clients will leave us or that they will hate us or I don't know, just various different barriers, I think, to um, taking any time off, let alone that much time. Have you ever taken off this much time before? Well, I was thinking about my career. So not since I've been in private practice. There was a period when I came... I had worked in New York and I had come to Seattle and then September 11th happened and the economy crashed and I could not find work. 
Um, there was the period after my son was born. I feel like women, I don't know if men are given that option to take time after you have a baby. Um, but I didn't, I just stopped working at an agency and then slowly built work back up. Starting when he was nine months, I started teaching and getting more and more work. Um, yeah, but not since I've had a private practice. And I don't know, I know a couple people have taken breaks for babies I met someone that took a three-year break and moved overseas and then built their practice back up. But it this isn't what we do. <laughs> yeah. And do you think it'll massively impact your income at all? Or you- Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, we budgeted for this. But it's a... Because as soon as I announced I was going on a break, anyone who was ambivalent was like, well, I'll just leave now. <laughs> So there was that drop off. Yeah. And then, um, and I haven't been bringing new people in as, so I've, I'm down probably to half now. Yeah. And then when I come back, I'll probably be half of that. So yeah, yeah it's a, it's a big deal. Um, and I should say this wasn't my idea. I didn't say like, I want a sabbatical. Um, I'm joining my family. <laughs> Right. I didn't think this plan up. I would have never done anything like this. Um, I re- actually, now that I think about it, I took off about the same amount of time to drive across the United States. Really? Um, and this was after 9-11, too. Hmm. And I uh, had a very similar kind of situation where it was just like, well, I hope I have work when I get back. Because um, when you're you know, self-employed and you're getting clients, it's just like... And there's this... I think there's this mentality, or at least for me, when I first started my private practice where I every client in the beginning was such a blessing mm-hmm. and and was like, Oh my god, like I'm someone wants to work with me. And that just becomes this rolling desperation from month to month where I, I would just feel like, Oh my god, like I hope my I hope all my clients think I'm valuable, you know, because my income depends on this and and then the idea of just like walking away mm-hmm. and hoping that it's there when you get back just seems uh, very uh, counterintuitive to to that way of thinking when you're f- when you're first starting out. Um, but uh, what I always try to tell people uh, that are just starting out is that if they like you now, they'll like you when you get back. <laughs> And if you're getting clients now, you'll get clients when you get back, mm-hmm. you know, unless something really bad happens to the economy, which happens occasionally, then the the intake or the number of clients coming in will probably be similar, mm-hmm. right? After 9-11, there was this huge, um, I mean, I don't know if people remember how weird our economy was at the time. I mean, the airline industry just basically shut down mm-hmm. and that affected all these other things and the stock market and like there's all this uncertainty and then the anthrax thing happened. Oh yes. And there was just this ton of uncertainty and the economy uh, wasn't doing great. And when, especially for people like us who see people who might not necessarily need therapy, you know, it's not like a, it's not like they're psychotic or bipolar or something per se, you know, it's, 
it's a, an expense they could probably pull back on if things are getting a little scary in the economy or they lose their job or they lose their health insurance or something. And then the same thing happened in 08 after the housing crisis. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, before 08, I had tons of people in my practice that paid my full fee and cash. And after that, it took years. I would say maybe just in the last couple of years that's happened again. Wow. Yeah, for me, it... It, I didn't, I don't know why, but it just didn't occur to me that it would happen to me, but it did. Mm-hmm. And cause, cause in, in after nine 11, the economy wasn't, I, I was, I was working a lot for the state at the time I had a private practice, but I was just starting out and had a lot of other income that didn't really depend on the economy. And so I didn't notice it as much after nine 11, but in 08, I was completely on my own. Mm-hmm. And I remember, do you remember the snowstorm in the end of 08 in Seattle? There's this huge snowstorm that lasts for like a week or so. Yeah, I think we weren't here for that. Oh. I think, yes. But we had to get between Christmas and yeah, New Year's. We had to get back into Seattle after that snowstorm and it was impossible. Yeah, it was insane because it was a huge amount of snow and we don't have any plows mm-hmm. in Seattle. Or one or we have one or two plows. And then it became this weird, then it, you know, it sort of melt and then freeze and then snow more. And it became, the roads became these like off-road, huge, like potholes of, of ice essentially. And where your car would bottom out, you wouldn't be able to drive even if you had chains or something. And so not only was the economy terrible at the end of 08, but also the snow was so bad, clients were like, I can't make it to your house. Right. Buses weren't running. And this was a big scandal, actually. The mayor at the time lost the re-election campaign because he used the plows to plow his house and the city council's house, the roads to their Um, houses. And nobody ever forgave them for that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know about that. Um, (laughs) It was, yeah, the snow was so bad that a bus, I think it was this same snowstorm, was coming down one of the hills from Capitol Hill and started sliding and then went over the freeway and hung over the freeway <laughs> like a like a superman movie you know where where it was you, full of kids too and it was like it was like teeter tottering over the freeway and you could see it i remember driving by and i was like oh there's the bus that's like hanging out over the freeway and uh and i just remember that week thinking I only have a couple clients scheduled mm. anyway mm-hmm. and now they can't make it, which, and I can't charge them for that. And right. so I'm going to have to move back in with my parents Uh-oh. or something. Like it, it was, <laughs> it, it, it was like a few months where I yeah. was serious. I even think I asked my parents, I was like, so is it okay if things, you know, cause my savings are dwindling. And then in 09, I recovered real fast. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but things just, uh, really took off. Actually, now that I think about it, um, oh, your your uh, mochi is seeing. She something. smells the cat. I bet oh, the cat the has come to investigate. Okay, um, your your dog was on my lap, <laughs> and then suddenly leapt like like Superman across the room, and is now smelling under my door. Um, <clears throat> so. Uh, I started the podcast at at that time too. Like, right, it's been ten years. Right, so it was it was 
kind of um, anyway. Let's introduce the podcast, and then maybe we could respond to some. <laughs> let's some, talk some more. Yeah, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and a lap for mochi. Who are you, mm. Rebecca? Uh, my name is Rebecca Bloom. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a board-certified art therapist about to take a break from that identity and be a world traveler instead. Do you want to talk about some of the places you're going to go? Yeah. Well, I'll talk about how I'm getting ready. Um, you fly tomorrow, right? I fly Monday. Oh. Uh, fingers crossed. Connection in Oakland. Everyone keep their fingers crossed. Um so we are doing Spain, Portugal, Croatia, maybe Romania, maybe not, and Southern, we'll do Istanbul and then uh, Turkey, the beach, the beachy part. Um, and so to prepare myself, I've done a couple things. I've made a four-hour playlist of the music of that region, listening to flamenco. Also, uh, Turkish flute music is amazing. Mm. And some current dance music coming out of those regions. Um, that's been helpful for me. And then I've been listening to a podcast called The History of Rome. Of the History of the Roman Empire. Have you listened to that one? I think I have. Um, it, who is the host? I can't remember, but there's four million episodes. And they're like yeah. 20 minutes. So Yeah. Um, he goes through everything. Yes. Yeah. I think I have listened to that one. Yeah. So on that podcast, I learned, I knew that the place that we're going in split Croatia it has been advertised as the summer palace of the Roman empire, but it turns out it was like emperor number three. It was his retirement palace and he moved there to grow cabbage. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm feeling really knowledgeable about the area and I want to get into the history of the area. Like in Havar, Croatia will go to one of the oldest inhabited caves um, in the peninsula area there where they found the earliest known petroglyph of a boat. Earliest known petroglyph of a boat. <laughs> yes. How old would it be? It's like five or 6,000 years old. Yeah, I I went to Santorini, mm -hmm. which is, you know, in that region, and they had a ruin with things that were super old. You know, there's like the Mediterranean, uh, some say is the birthplace of civilization, mm -hmm. you know, because of the, the way that the um, uh, agriculture sort of took to that and sort of animals and trade and everything. And yeah, that, that whole region right on, you know, there, and then you go to Greece and then you go to Crete mm -hmm. and you go to the fertile crescent and the things there are, are ancient yeah. and, and preserved, which is, which is really interesting. Yeah. And then the other thing we hope to see in Turkey is I'm going to, there are many, these names, there are vowels and consonants that I'm not used to seeing together, and so I can never remember the name. <laughs> I think it's C-E-L-I-R-A, Celera in Turkey, hmm. and the beaches there, uh, the leatherhead turtles have been laying their eggs there for 40 million years. Oh my God. <laughs> and fingers crossed, if we let go of Romania... We'll be there when the eggs hatch. And I, I think that would be one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Yeah. Well, post pictures. <laughs> I will. 
And you can post them to uh, oh, the, yeah. the Facebook page and maybe to the fan page. There's a lot of, a lot of people on the fan page. Okay. So this is a, an email from an anonymous patron that I want to run by you, Rebecca. Okay. It's a bit of a long one, but I think it's worth it. I'm a licensed professional counselor at a college. The total enrollment for the college is less than 1,000 students. My boss, who is not a therapist, had this idea of a wellness program. I was put in a group that had a plan. I was put in a group that had to plan events to promote wellness for the students. I was assigned to a group with a hall director, a student activity director, and a residence life detect director. So these are not therapists. The big idea was to have a pool party for the students. During the planning phases, I brought up concerns with my participation since I might see my clients at the pool party, but my concerns were not heard. In fact, the hall director said, don't worry about it. This party is going to be dope. At the pool party, the students would be having fun in bathing suits and the other students that I'm and, and at other events that I'm supposed to attend, the students are possibly drinking and or drunk because it's a college event. My colleague and I, who is the other licensed counselor on campus, do not feel comfortable with this. I don't like the blurred lines or role confusion. We are always fighting to be treated as professionals on our campus. We want to gain trust with students, and I'm concerned that when we slip into these non-counseling roles, it will negatively affect that trust and professionalism. For example, I had a session yesterday with a student who was able to share a traumatic childhood memory with me that he had been hiding for so long, he even dissociated in session. After the session, I thought about him and what it would do to our therapeutic relationship if later that night he saw me at a pool party or some other event in which everyone was getting drunk. Rebecca, what do you think about this? Well, small towns are have their own set of rules. So there's, I mean, so I know what the administration is trying to do. They're trying to do this kind of like embedded counselor thing where the counselor's just like, hey, part of the community. Um but it sounds like it's not a good fit for this particular type of therapist. I mean, I hear similar stories from my friends who are high school counselors who are expected to be like at the football games and all of that, just kind of like available. And Well, are they therapists like you and me or are they high school counselors? You know what I mean? Yeah. These people, some people are in that role of like being the person that people. But are they licensed? You know what I mean? Because like, because there are. There, I hate this language, you know, too, because you can have high school counselors who are totally like us. They're mm-hmm. licensed mental health professionals. And then you have high school counselors, same name, who aren't licensed clinicians. They are high school administrator advisors, you know, kind of people. You know, and they might, they might counsel, quote unquote, students about their problems, but they're not mental health professionals right. who yeah. have to follow ethical codes and stuff. You know? Yeah. Uh, I know people in small towns who've been in this situation before where they're asked to wear multiple. I mean, I would say this is a situation where you're asked to wear multiple hats. Clearly this person isn't comfortable with that. Um, but I'm curious in this, I'm not surprised to hear this happening in this type of environment. What would you do if it was you? I would probably go and not be in my bathing suit and not stay long. <laughs> I mean, I would say like, hey, can I be in charge of setup yeah. and like stay a half hour or so and then be on my way? Would you? Yeah. So it sounds like you would feel similar to her and 
try to opt out kind of. Yeah. But I would, I, I, I'm not in that situation, but I can see what they're up to. Um, and the idea is, you know, it's very difficult for people to understand our work and what it takes to build safety. I mean, that's one of the interesting conversations I just had with my friend who's a master carpenter. And she said, your work is so weird. Like I can just leave a job and like hand it over to someone else and they can finish up those cabinets. But our work doesn't work like that. Like nobody's going to like jump into a new place of trust with this new therapist. Um, So. So it sounds like you're kind of sympathetic to the request from administration that you kind of. So, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm reading into it, but it sounds like you're you're thinking, well, I, I can see the benefit of having a wellness program in which everyone participates and tries to create community or something like that. Right. I would just put, I would just ask for limits on it. I mean, that was true in my college too. They had an anti-drinking program and the therapist would show up from time to time. Um, so I think sometimes in these small environments, you're asked to wear multiple hats. They can get complicated. What if they're in a humongous city like New York or Boston? Or um, I would hope there would be. An, I mean, I think when I say small environment, I mean the school itself is small. Right. Um, whereas, you know, at a bigger college, you've got more people to do more jobs. I see. But I would also say, like, my I know my friends who work in the military, it's kind of similar. Like you're kind of around and they have you doing, you know, you might be like part of the family drop-in hour or, you know. Well, for me, I feel similarly to you, Rebecca, but I am more incensed by stuff like this. I have run into this before personally. And when I was a novice therapist, I would just give in because I didn't know any better or I didn't have a power or whatever. And later career, when people ask me to do stuff like this, I very quickly tell them, would you like me to lose my license? Because Mm -hmm. that's what you're asking me to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you like me to harm my patients? Because I'd like that to be on the record that you're asking me to risk treatment of individuals in terms of their mental health. That's what, if you're asking me to do that, what I would, would we like to document this request right now? Like I have no problem telling people that like, I've been running into this thing recently at the university where the higher ups, there's a student who is underperforming and we have policies on the books that uh, very clearly delineate exactly what needs to happen in order for the student to graduate. And if they don't pass those thresholds, then they don't get to graduate. I assume every training program has protocols and policies and thresholds like that, right? And so we are upholding our policy that we, you know, indiscriminately apply to everybody and, but, and rarely too. It's, it's like, it's pretty rare that a student will get in a situation like that. So, uh, one, because it's not rocket science and two, we tend to get a pretty good pool of applicants that of people who are working really hard and, you know, they, they make it happen kind of a thing. Anyway. So we, as a program are upholding our end of the bargain of integrity and from the administration, they are, uh, they're fighting us on it, which is weird. And it's just like, and, uh, and I've been daydreaming about the, the, 
the blasting I'm going to give them the next time I, ha- I get a chance. I'm going to say, so you want us to completely disregard our integrity and let everyone through the program without any thought about upholding standards or gatekeeping into the or you know making sure that everyone has competencies. Is that what you're asking me to do? Because I just like to put that on record that that's what you're asking us to do. Because that's basically what they're asking us to do. That's not the way they're wording it, of course. Right, right. They're wording it like, well, you know, let's take into consideration, you know, and it's just like, uh, what? What are we taking into consideration? You know, uh, t- tell me what we're taking into consideration. We're taking into consideration that we're, the student didn't meet the standards, you know, and we're giving them a way to meet those. St- it's not like we're we're completely you know, uh, stonewalling, we're saying, here's what you have to do. And mm-hmm. the student knows doesn't want it, doesn't want to do it. And it's like, well, then tough shit, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, that's weird that you don't want to do it, but okay. You know? And, uh, and so I, I, I I'm just so fed up with people, I don't know, just like not respecting other people's professions. And I, you know, with a, with a request like this, the, with the one this anonymous patron is writing about, it makes total sense that a small university would be like, okay, all of our workers, we're going to build community, you know, everyone, you know, there's no exceptions. Everyone's going to participate in it. Like, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. The fact that they don't understand that therapists have, like, a different kind of role with the students, you know, um, and that therapists in general, you know, I mean, another factor is like women therapists, I'm guessing, because like early on in my career, I got this vibe that especially in family therapy and especially because I was young, I got treated like I was a camp counselor or something mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, and then it wasn't terrible. You know, I was like, well, I don't really care. I don't I don't feel like I deserve respect, so I don't care. But sometimes there were times when I really wanted delineated. I literally wanted to be treated like a professional, you know? And so I started wearing suits to work. <laughs> like, can you imagine me wearing a suit every day I, to my agency job? I, I would wear a suit like with a tie and stuff because I wanted people to say, Oh, that's a professional. He's not just a, a schlub, you know? Mm-hmm. And did it work? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe wearing a suit made me feel more professional or something. Mm-hmm. And then I acted and felt more entitled to like being able to say, look, I am not a camp counselor. Mm-hmm. I am a professional mental health, you know, worker. And, um, that doesn't mean that you need to bow down to me, but it means that I have certain standards and ethical codes I have to follow. And I'm sorry about that. You know, just, it, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not just a casual talker to children. You know, I'm, I'm a professional, you know, I, I have, I have standards and there's, there's literally federal laws that, that I can be fined, you know, $50,000. If I, if someone complains to the feds that I did this or that, mm-hmm. you know, that you, you were in your bathing suit at a, um, I mean, you know, we're not even supposed to, there are some people that leave the room when their therapist walks in. Like, there's all kinds of stories. Like, you go to your favorite AA meeting, but one of your clients walks in. What do you do? Do you leave the AA meeting so that your client can have that meeting? Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, there are social situations that we're not supposed to be in with our therapist. Right. I mean, there's, there's ethical guidelines, you know, and, and there are things that HIPAA won't 
really care about so much, but, but you know, what, what this universe, what this college is asking this professional, these two professional therapists to do is to, I mean, one, the ethical code of harming the client is definitely, you know, in, in question and exactly for the reasons she said, it's like, I have a client, I have clients who are telling me things that are extremely personal that they've never told anyone before. If they see me at a pool party socializing with other students and, you know, are they now going to question whether or not they feel comfortable telling me extremely personal things later on? So I would be curious, like if that, if this therapist was like at a booth with information, with pamphlets, would that feel better? Like if they had a job at this party right? or is it just, you know, being at the party without the job with the expect expectation that they would interact like everybody else um, is that it? Or if they were there kind of representing the counseling center and then we're on their way, would that be a better fit if they were right. in role? Right. A- and what effect it might have on her in terms of I'm now watching my clients drunk and, uh, you know, making out with each other in the hot tub or what, you know, the way she did, I mean, it's college for crying out loud. And it seems like they're trying to set up things with alcohol involved, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, I remember college <laughs> and, uh, and it might harm her. It might make it not that that's necessarily an ethical thing in terms of our clients, but it might make it so it's harder for her to, to see the clients in the same way or something. I don't know. Um, so, so here's my advice, and this is kind of what I said in the email, is that it, it is unethical. Uh, there can be exceptions, again, small-town stuff, um, other kind. You could justify certain things or, or do certain practices, like tell all your clients, by the way, I'm going to be at this thing. Is that okay? You could even have them sign a consent saying it's okay. You know, there, there are ways you can mitigate the potential harm to the clients, Um but it's so easily avoidable in, in some of the ways you're saying, like, I'll just do setup. Or c- can I contribute in a way that doesn't mean that I actually have to physically be there while my clients are there? You know, mm-hmm. could I coordinate everything? Or could I get all the supplies? Or could I advertise it all? You know, like, there's, there's there, you know, there's probably some, it's easily avoidable in terms of, like, you know, contributing somehow. The other thing is, is that, that I told her in the email is that you as a professional are responsible for your ethical codes. Your boss is not. Mm-hmm. So just because your boss asks you to do something, uh, doesn't over, you can't, you, when you go to the licensing board, you can't say, well, my boss told me to like, that doesn't fly it. You are responsible for your ethical codes. Now, if it's some super harassment issue or something, I'm guessing that there would be some account for that, but but at the same time, but, but it'd be a pretty rare situation, you know? So anyway, you have to, you have to uphold your ethical uh, codes, which might mean really, really fighting back. Uh, I find that when you write a letter that is CC'd to a number of people and it quotes your ethical guidelines and and quotes the consequences to you and potentially the institution uh, of the what could happen if a client decides to sue you and the university, I find that is highly motivating to upper management. 
they really do not want to get sued. And so, uh, and it's a very easy lawsuit that can be easily avoided. And the other thing is, is that, um, and I've done this before is I will sit down and really just explain the ethical codes to people because why would they know? How, how would they know that? Right. Tons of people don't know. This happened recently. Something I, I posted about my trip on Facebook and a friend said to me, like, you just told the whole world what you're doing. And I said, you know, because of my career, my f- Facebook account is pretty shut down. Um, it's not public, you know, all that stuff. Um, and she's a writer. Like, I don't think it ever crossed her mind that my career would impact my social media presence. Um, yeah, I mean, there's certain things I don't do. Yeah. And so it's natural that other people don't understand that because the rules that we have are really weird compared to other professions. And so I find that you just, you know, just sit your boss down and just explain it. And again, I like your idea, Rebecca, of just like saying, look, I can contribute in so many other ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And honestly, if, if your boss doesn't listen, then I would go to their superior or I would consult with your professional organization about what to do and maybe ask them to write something up, you know, um, or talk to HR, honestly, because it's, it's a little bit of a HR issue. If you're feeling pressured to harm yourself and your clients because your boss isn't listening to you or something, you know, um, there's a lot of things you can do. And I mean, I've told this story before, but it, it relates is that a, I was working at an agency and my boss was a therapist and she was trying to drum up business for the, for the agency. And so she was going to just pull all the files, the client files and send a flyer to everyone, to everyone in the, Mm -hmm. that had an address and be like, here's our other services, you know? And she said this during a staff meeting and I was like, oh, well, that can't happen. So I, you know, I raised my hand and I was like, well, we can't do that because I have clients who don't, they're teenagers and they haven't told their parents that they're in therapy. And so we can't do that. And I thought for sure she'd be like, oh, of course you're right. Thank you, Kirk, for reminding me of all of our ethical responsibilities of not harming human beings. Thank you, Kirk, for reminding me. It's obvious, you know, you just pointed out something obvious and she was like, Hmm, well, we're still going to do it. And I thought, how, what, what, am I in bizarre world here? Like you're a therapist and I just pointed out that I, I actually just told you I have clients who are not, are still closeted in 1999 and are talking about the fact that they're closeted and, um, and they haven't even told their parents they're in therapy and their parents are immigrants and their parents are prone to violence. You know what I mean? Like, should we just pump the brakes or, or at the very least I was just like, could we just identify some people that you shouldn't send this to? And Mm -hmm. she's like, no, it'll be fine. And I just thought, wow. So, you know, I get it and it's unfortunate. Anyway, let's take a break and we get back. Let's talk about whether or not it's okay to Google your clients. Ooh. What's that? Okay, so we're back from the break, and I want to remind everyone to become a patron of the podcast. When, we, when you become a patron, you 
sleep better at night knowing you're supporting something that, that you really enjoy. Um, so an anonymous patron wrote in, is it ever okay to Google a patient? I have done this when I have a patient who is a poor historian oh. and I'm looking to gain a clearer understanding of their legal involvement, but I wonder if this is unethical. Rebecca, what do you think? I think it is unethical to Google your patient. How so? What ethical code? Uh, I, I mean, I heard that if somebody contacts you to be your patient, you're not supposed to Google them to find out whether or not you should like to make the choice about whether you want to see them or not. But what ethical code do you think? I don't is? know. Yeah. Um, but I think you should probably not Google your patient if you feel they're a bad historian. Why? Uh, because clients self-report, right? It's not, um, I don't know. Tell yeah. me the answer. I'm clearly fumbling around in the dark. No, I agree. The, the notion, I mean, I don't know what sort of work this, this patron is doing. If they're doing anything akin to psychotherapy or counseling, I agree with what you're saying, Rebecca, which is that just because someone in this, the, the phrase poor historian kind of says a lot, right? It's, it's something that agencies will, there's a culture among agency workers where it's like, oh, this person's a, a poor historian, meaning that the client d isn't very forthcoming with history or, uh, or even lies or something. But I want to remind everyone that counseling and therapy, for the most part, unless it's, you have a specific role otherwise, is not an investigatory process. Right. You have to tolerate what the client tells you as what you're going to get. Right. And the notion that if someone's lying to you, you have to figure it out. Mochi really wants to up. I know. You need to pick her up. That harness is like a handle. Oh, catastrophe. All right. Come on. Mochi. Okay, we're back. We're back in the game. Okay. Is that the... Um, uh, now, if you have a specific role where you're like a parenting investigator or a, I don't know, guardian ad litem or something or a CPS worker for that matter. But if you're providing counseling services, a, a reminder to everyone that clients come to us voluntarily for help and they ask us for help. They ask us for something. And if they want to lie, if they want to lie to us and be a poor historian and deceive us, then that is up to them. You know. Well, I'm also thinking, what are you going to do with this information? So this client, you you Google your client, you find out whatever they grew up in Poughkeepsie when they said they grew up in Honolulu. Yeah. Then the next time they tell a Honolulu story, are you, what are you going to say as the therapist? Like, yeah. I know you're lying. I know you grew up in Poughkeepsie. Well, I think that's what some some cultures propagate mm -hmm. as the purpose of what therapy is, right? Mm -hmm. To get to the truth? Yeah, of like like I and I get this from supervisees who work in agencies. It's not an explicit role role, you know, that people talk about, but it's something that starts to proliferate through certain us versus them cultures mm -hmm. where you have the clients against the you know, therapist against the clients. Like you have a an agency where they specialize in child sexual abuse. And so you as a therapist work with a lot with families who have had a family member abuse a child. 
and you work closely with CPS and with the prosecutor and whatnot, and you end up starting to think it's your role to get to the bottom of the mm-hmm. facts of the abuse mm-hmm. and to make the parents admit that they were a part of the problem or that the, you know, like I'll, I'll have some supervisees that will say, you know, I suspect that the mother is drinking every night, but she, she just dances around it or, you know, cause the kid will tell me that the mom is drinking every night, but when I talk to the mom, she, she doesn't want to talk about it. Mm. And I'm like, well, why do you, why do you think it's your job to make people talk about things they don't want to talk about? It's unfortunate if the person is drinking every night and that probably does impact the life of the children, which is again, unfortunate, but you're not a cop. You're not a chemical dependency counselor. You're not their mother. You're not a social worker. You can invite, you know, you could be like, so your kids said you drink every night, and I just want to let you know that's what they're saying. And I'm just, once you know I'm here as a non judgmental person, if you want to talk about it, um, you know, that's fine. But if you don't, it's also fine. But there's these attitudes that, that people get into where it's like, it's now my job to like make the mom admit she's drinking every night because then I've, then I caught her, and then I'm going to say, ha, I caught you. And, it's um, so, uh, you know, the patron that wrote in didn't give me any detail. So maybe right. maybe there's a whole reason as to why they're talking about um, trying to figure out a way to uh, learn more about their clients who are, quote unquote, poor historians by Googling them. Um, I would say, I mean, from a counter transference perspective, it's an interesting question, which is what's it like to sit with someone whose story flip-flops or changes and why is that intolerable to you? Because I've had, I I don't know if I've told the story, but I had a client who was a compulsive liar and um, it was, you know, there was just a new one every session. And the thing I came up with to say was, you know, I look forward to seeing some pictures from that time or, you know, just put it back on them because these stories were just getting more and more outrageous. And it, um, but it was clearly something in their process. It wasn't saying anything about me that they were choosing to lie to me. And the and the fact that you were being lied to doesn't doesn't mean anything. You know, it's like it it's a um, like you say the countertransference is is like interesting, right? And um, you can comment on that. You can just be like, so just let you know, there are times when you're talking where. I get this notion in my head that you're lying to me. I don't know if you are or not, but it just, I don't know. I just kind of, I don't know if you're um, trying to impress me or you're trying to push me away or you don't trust me or you don't trust people in general or, you know, or whatever, you know, I just, I just want to throw that out there as like, I don't, as a question that I just don't really know. And that's absolutely relevant therapeutically because now you're, you're now you're like meta talking about the talking that you guys are participating in. Um, anyway, so and also, I mean, there's a I've worked with many poor historians, and sometimes that speaks to their diagnosis. Yeah. You know, if they substance abuse, schizophrenia, all these things lead to very poor historians, right? Um, and then if there's something there, you're not they're not telling you. There's probably a reason why, right? They either are terribly ashamed or they don't trust you. And if you're trying to 
get the information and they detect that, then they're going to be even more concerned about opening up to you, you know? And not everybody wants to remember everything. I mean, that's the interesting right. part about the terminating process that I've done with art therapy. You bring out everybody's, all their artwork. And I had a client today who I worked with very long term and they were looking at their artwork and they had no memory of some of the stuff. And they were like, I want to put this away. I don't want to remember this. Right. I'd forgotten about this. Um, so if people are, if, if something is not active in their consciousness, there's a reason for that. Right. And I'm just curious about digging around in there and being like, ha ha. Right. Now, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, with regards to Googling your client, there is nothing in the ethical codes that says you can't do it. The, the only thing it really relates to is um, client autonomy, essentially, in, in terms of allowing your clients to tell you what they want to tell you mm -hmm. rather than you investigating. So that's kind of related. Um, another is that it can harm treatment because you could learn something that could make it so that you will have a hard time empathizing with them or you will be now in a position where you have to lie to them that you didn't Google them mm -hmm. or you have to reveal that you did Google them and they will be hurt by that and the treatment will be harmed. So, but, you know, that that's kind of a, it's not an automatic, right? And honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to why people, Mochi is now seeing the uh, fly that is flying around. It's a big fly that's buzzing around in my office right now. If you want to know how to drive Kirk crazy, <laughs> put a big, huge fly in his office and have him not be able to catch it. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that Mochi gets it. You know? If it gets very close, she will snap at it. Good. Get it when it comes by. Um, and... So, uh, so it's not an automatic thing that anyway, I'm curious as to what you heard in terms of people saying it's, it's wrong to screen your clients. So this came up, I don't know if you planned on talking about this, but recently it came through our community on several information boards that, uh, several client, several therapists have been assaulted mm -hmm. on the first session by the same person. Mm -hmm. Sexually assaulted. Sexually assaulted. So everybody's worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of questions got flagged about like, what can I do to protect myself? Mm -hmm. um, what, like I think about like when I go to the doctor now, so there's some idea that this person was using a fake name. And I thought about when I go to the doctor and I hand over my insurance card, they also ask for ID now to prove that I'm the, I'm the person. Um, and so I thought, you know, if I ever didn't trust someone, would I ask for their ID as a way to, you know, have evidence of who they were. Another thing that came up in this is, can I Google somebody before I see them? And a lot of people said, no, I hope this, I don't know if I'm going to incriminate myself, but there are times where I have done that. If somebody felt really sketchy to me, sure. I've looked them up and been yeah. like, mm, so, so I don't my, think this person is a good fit for me. My take on, and and this is a question that obviously is relatively new in our profession, even though Google's been around for almost 20 years or something, but it, it's uh, our profession takes a long time to figure this sort of stuff out. So it's a relatively new question. So maybe at some point there'll be some other answer, but my take on the ethical codes and of the nuances is that um, you can absolutely 
Google, especially to screen, honestly, as long as you are careful about what you click on and so as to not ruin your ability to have compassion for a client. But honestly, for me, given, I think, the capacity I have for having empathy for clients, I can't imagine seeing anything online that would make it so I couldn't have compassion for somebody, Um, especially given the way that I have just had experience with empathizing and having compassion for people who who have very different political views than I do. So, because that's the only thing I can think of in terms of seeing, you know, it's like, oh, they're a white supremacist or something like I, it's like if they're in my office, I'm, I'm going to listen to them, you know? And so I just can't imagine that it would hinder my ability to treat somebody. Um, so yeah, so yeah, just to go a little bit into that, I've been working closely with some people who have actually been contacted by this person. So there, there's this, there's this man in the Pacific Northwest who is calling female therapists and is making appointments with them, getting into their office and then sexually assaulting them. There's two women who have come forward and uh, made those reports. The police have done nothing and the um, other or, and or the women who were assaulted aren't going to the police themselves because they just don't want the attention or something. I can't remember the exact thing, but so naturally everyone's afraid and especially people that I've talked to who have been contacted by this person. Cause you know, th- there's a name that they're identifying, mm-hmm. you know, as women are saying, watch out for this guy. And, and then I've had supervisees who have actually Googled this person and this person has a internet presence. This, this man who's been identified by these two women as having sexually assaulted. They, you know, he has, he has publicly viewable things online which talks about his fantasies about assaulting therapists. Right. And so then the women, the therapists, go to the police and, and say, uh, so, da 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 and the police, again, do nothing. Again, I don't know the legality. Maybe the police hands are tied or something, but it certainly falls in line with the general uh, discounting of women and of uh, sexual assault in general or something and... and um, at least that's what it's being reported to me as. But so it's quite disappointing that there's all this evidence and and all this online uh, evidence, and yet this guy, as the last I heard, is still at large. Uh, and how many women don't know about this guy? Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that many people do know about his name is. Um, kind of surprising given the fracturing of our private, because these are all private practice therapists who... I mean, it's spread fast. I have rarely seen something show up in so many places. But how many people aren't on Facebook or, you know what I mean, or just... And there were people that I reached out, like my personal supervisees, I reached out to individually. And I mean, it felt like such a duty to warn thing that I emailed all my supervisees and said, this is happening. Yeah. So I even went to one of my supervisees' offices. She had a, a an intake with a new client and was worried that it might be him. Because the other thing is like, is that him or is that a fake his? Is that right. a fake picture of him with fake name, fake picture? And 
And honestly, the guy sounds unhinged. He sounds like he's like actually manic or psychotic or something. I mean, he doesn't seem well. You know, he seems like the fact. I mean, how many rapists go online and brag that they like to? How many people rape therapists then go online and create like this profile where they're bragging about raping therapists? Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's this really strange profile. But anyway, so I actually went to the office of one of my supervisees to, to like make sure that this wasn't going to happen um, because we were both very concerned that, you know, what if it was him? And, and, and it's just so bizarre that we can't, there's no apparent resource. Now, maybe something has happened since then in the past couple of weeks. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so the point is, is that I think that's completely justified in in the light of that or in other circumstances of safety to Google certain new clients or or recent intakes or I don't know to um make sure that that's not the person or that that person exists in reality cuz cuz when I was talking with my supervisees about this I was like okay well let's problem solve this there's got to be a way to like really make sure that that these women can feel safe. There's got to be a way, right? And I was thinking, well, I guess you could hire a security guard, but that seems excessive. And then I thought, well, I guess you could work. You know, one of the things that I came up with was that they send a selfie with today's newspaper or something and their ID. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, so because you could ID them once they get to your office, but they're Great, it's but, not too late. But they're at their because the way that this guy does it, he just he just he immediately assaults these women. It's not like a long con. He mm-hmm. gets in their office and immediately assaults them. So if you're IDing them upon walking into the office, like, well, it, the game's over at that point. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, well, I guess you could take a selfie with a with an ID or something, and maybe that would work because because then at least you would know that they're giving you the right name. Yeah, I mean, my, I'm very curious. I think he's using a fake name, correct? Right. Yeah. Well, That's I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, maybe you know more than I do, but I don't know. Um, he's using the same name, which is, which is, whatever, whether it's fake or, or real. That's how I know he contacted another one of my supervisees because mm-hmm. she's like, that guy called my, my group practice and mm-hmm. wanted to make an appointment with me. And they told him to go to hell. <laughs> and so, uh, so because of the name, mm-hmm. you know, um, so, so anyway, I think that Googling under those circumstances, but, um, but if you're just randomly working with a client and you're just curious about a client and then you just decide, I think I want to know more about this person and you Google them because there's no clinical reason to do so, mm-hmm. there, there's, I can't It'd think- be like, would you follow them home? Like, I wonder how they're doing. Yeah. You know, would you follow them home from the grocery store? I mean, I think it's kind of the same thing. Like, you're just right. looking for information, right? Right. And and that in and of itself is not unethical, but because, like I said, it could, it could, it puts you in a position as a, of a therapist of either lying to your client about certain, that you don't know certain things, you know, like you Google, like one thing that you could do is you could like Google street view them and see like where they live, like see what their house looks like or something. And then, 
they could start talking about their house and you're like, I know what your house looks like, mm-hmm. but in this moment, I'm going to act like I don't know what your house looks like, you know? <laughs> and, and so in that moment, you're essentially lying because you, you already know what their house looks like. Um, that's a, you know, a small example, but you could expand on that in terms of like other more provocative things you might know about somebody that you could Google them. The other is that you would have to reveal to them, Oh no, I already know what your house looks like. Cause I already Googled you. Like, so both of those circumstances could harm the relationship and therefore harm treatment, which is unethical. And since there's no good reason to Google them, then you couldn't justify it if there was a complaint. Um, if a, uh, a sexual, a serial sexual rapist is on the loose in Seattle and you have Googled someone prior to meeting with them to make sure that they're not this serial racist rapist, uh, that can be upheld as, a, you know, a cause, reasonable cause to, to Google someone prior to, to meeting them at the risk of learning something that could compromise your relationship with somebody. Um, plus the other thing is, is that I'm telling supervisees is go ahead and Google people and just tell, tell them when they walk into your office, just so you know, there's this, there's this person who's assaulting therapists. And so I actually Googled you just to make sure that you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're who you are. And this is what I saw. I saw that you have a Tumblr page and I saw, and I looked just briefly at it, but I, I just wanted to make sure that you are who you were just, you know, and, um, I hope that's okay with you. Um, but I'll, and I'll never do it again now that I know that it's you and not this other person. I will. So has a client ever told you that they Googled you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one, I'm, you know, highly Googleable. <laughs> um, and people will say, yeah, I was, ref- you know, I got, someone gave me your name and, and really, um, I wonder how many clients don't Google us. Yeah. I mean, I've had a client go one step further. Maybe I've told this story before. This was back when you couldn't shut down who your friends were on Facebook and you couldn't make your picture. You couldn't make your first thing private the way you can now or whatever. Anyways, they said that they Googled, they went through all my friends on Facebook and like tried to assess something about me. Yeah. Um, Obviously this is a client who's addressing all kinds of boundary issues. Right. <laughs> but, I thought, but also their assumptions were totally off, and that was really interesting. Right. And because I'm so Googleable, and, and worse, if you listen to every episode of this podcast, you would learn in every episode a little bit more about me personally. It does make my job as a therapist a little bit more difficult given the style of therapy that I like to do. Right. Um, so you find that people know stuff about you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I have to navigate that. Um, for some people they don't care. There's certain therapists like, um, my friend Bob, he's a therapist. He, he comes on the podcast sometimes. He doesn't care about people knowing things about him. He's, he's just kind of an open book in general. He's like, I don't really care. Um, but the style of therapy I like to do, I, I like it when clients are not distracted by details about me. And so, um, and to that end, I've always refrained from saying certain things on the podcast about my personal life. That's 
We I've, both carry big secrets. Yeah. And we know what they are. Yeah. But the listeners do not. That's right. And so, uh, because any client can be a listener and any listener could be a potential client later on, you know? Um, so, but, but I, uh, the clients that I have had who do listen to the podcast, I have found a way to navigate it. Mm-hmm. Let's just put it that way. Cause, cause the relationship that we have as client therapists is so much deeper and more, um, I don't know just more real than, than... And you edit this podcast. I mean, you take out all of the big mistakes. So right. people don't know just how crazy it gets in here. <laughs> how many secrets that we reveal about our lives. And, <laughs> and then I go back and edit it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so... And I will say, too, I did have... An, there There are a couple of therapy scams going on where like people are like, I'd like to see you and I'll pay you in advance and then you know you deposit the check and then they demand it back and it was a bad check and so yeah so i did have an experience where somebody came to me and they're like i want to see you and i'll pay you in advance and i was like yeah uh can you tell me a little bit more about what's going on and when they came in it turned out they were a real person and when they came in they were like yeah why did you give me the third degree like that and i was like well there are these scams (laughs) and i thought you were so how does it work they they give you a check and then how does it work? They send you a check in advance, you deposit it, it's a bad check, and then they ask then they don't come and they say you need to send me the money back. And But it, and it's before the check bounces. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I could see that working. A lot I bet you a lot of therapists don't necessarily know the timeline on whether or not a check would bounce mm-hmm. or not. Yeah, that's interesting. And You'd I have to do it pretty fast, though. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I know several people that have fallen for it. Oh, really? Yeah. How much money do they ask for? You know, like four sessions or... Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. It must a- be a very effective scam because it's gone around many, many times. It seems weird, though, because it seems like you'd have to give, a, give out at least a P.O. box, which is associated with a real human, right? I mean... You know, you're mailing a unless it's a PayPal thing. Like, no, you're mailing a bad check. You could write any fake address on that. It's a fake check. But then, it's when you a... send the check back to them, oh, where does it go? Unless it's a PayPal or something, it just seems right. Like, I don't know. I wonder, I wonder how they manage that. It must be some way of, of doing that, I guess. Or the therapists don't follow through, or the cops don't care, or something. Or it's know. not enough money to go to small claims court. Or, right. I don't yeah. know. Anyways, yeah. I know people have fallen for it. Yeah, while we're on the topic, another thing that I've heard from women therapists, maybe we've talked about this before, uh, is that some creep men will get off by talking about sexual topics with therapists over the phone. Oh, yeah, the intake, yeah. So they will call and they'll say... So I, you know, I saw your website, thought you might be a good therapist. Is it okay if I just ask you a few questions Mm -hmm. to make sure you're the right therapist for me? And, you know, especially novice therapists are like, yes, absolutely. I'd I'd love to answer your questions. What, what do you have? You know? And, and there's nothing wrong with that because people will do that. But what these, what these creep men will do is exploit that. And they will say, 
well, you know, I've been having some issues with sexuality and, I, you know, I'm a little ashamed of it. Is it okay if I just, you know, ask you a couple questions about that? And the therapist is like, yeah, sure. You know, and, and then meanwhile, he just slowly starts to descend into more and more sexual talking and presumably masturbating while he's doing it. And over, at some point, the female therapist is starting to feel uncomfortable and like, what is, this feels like a lot, you know, we've been talking for 20 minutes now, Mm -hmm. like this seems a little excessive, like, but, but I really want to be open and I really want to get a client and I really want to be non-shaming. So, you know, and I've got time, so I'll listen a little bit more. And then at some point they're just like, okay, well, I guess I'll, you know, let, you know, I guess I have to go now. And then they hang up and then they talk to me and about it. And, um, over time, this happened enough times where I just started telling all my new supervisees, like, by mm-hmm. the way, if this ever happens, um, you'll probably, now that I've told you, you'll probably be able to tell and just immediately either hang up and tell the person to go to hell or ask if they want to make an appointment, you know, mm-hmm. just be like, so, um, and then, and then talk with me, you know, like, uh, but, um, there's nothing wrong with saying because if you're having a trouble, if you're having trouble differentiating, like is this person for real or are they not? Just just say like so. Just let you know, I don't do phone sessions, and I, you know, and if you have any other questions, I'd be glad to answer them. But um, I do have to go right now, and if you would like to make an appointment, um, feel free to email me or or make the appointment now. But I have to go. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with drawing that boundary. Yeah, I mean, any intake conversation that's going over five or ten minutes, too. Like, the the idea that someone would feel like they deserve that much of your time. Right. And some therapists do that as a matter of practice, mm-hmm. you know. I, they will say, and I give free 25-minute sessions so that you can see if you like me or not. You know, I, I occasionally get requests for that, and I'm like, nope, I don't do that. <laughs> you know, you have to... It's, it, I don't give out free time, you know, probationary time. The other, we've talked about this before. I'd be fascinated to see the statistics on what percentage of women do it and what percentage of men. I feel like women feel like they have to do it. Um, totally, and I don't agree with that. I think you know, and therapists in general, you know. Having said that, when I first started out, I did do it because mm-hmm. I was so desperate for clients when I first started out, but after, you know, a couple of years. Plus the other thing is I found most people, it, I never had a situation and I never even heard of a situation where someone did a 25 minute session with someone and they were like, well, you're the fifth person on my list. And so I'll let you know if I choose you or not. It, it's much more frequent that they've basically chosen you mm-hmm. and they're just not sure. And if they can get 25 minutes for free, then they'll do it, you know, but, but they usually will hire you, you know, if, if they make it all the way to your office and meet you in all likelihood. Now, if you said that, I always tell people that it's always best to shop around and really make sure, but people rarely do that. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am frequently trying to cheerlead uh, novice therapists, women and men alike to value their service and value their, um, uh, the amount of education they've been through because, you know, interns, you are, 
you're just, you're begging for clients. You're just like, please, can, can I please have a client? And please can, even though you're not paying me, can, can I please volunteer my time to make your agency money? And the, uh, these therapists graduate with this attitude that they aren't worth anything. And when, um, and it takes them a while to realize, wait, I spent $60,000 and three or four years of my life in graduate school. I am a highly trained mental health professional who provides a, a very needed service that is, is a very you know, valuable thing in our society. And I deserve to get paid, I guess. You know, like it's just totally a different way of thinking. You know, interns just, just, they just feel like they're lowest of the low. You know, they're, they're lower than a McDonald's employee because they don't even get paid. You know what I mean? They're just like, I, I don't have any rights. And, I, you know, and, and I, I need to beg people. I need to give, you know, pro bono and free sessions. And I'm just like, you know, you are worth getting paid for this job. You know? Right. I think the, it's interesting around payment that um, uh, there's a respect that comes with that. Like, so I've had a couple people come through the group space and it's all that the, it's was interesting. The one that was going to do all sliding scale, nothing ever got started. Um, and I think her net was too big, what she was trying to do. But also one of the things that attracts people to our work is when you say my service is valuable and I'm really going to, I'm probably going to help you. So trust me on that. Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's heartbreaking really to see people not only not value their service, but think that they're like more worthless than worthless or something, you know? And, and to be treated that way too, kind of. Um, well, I'm always surprised. Like some people start private practices and I'm like with, you know, right out of school. And I'm like, wow, you really think you're ready. And other people I know wait like 15 years and they're still like, I think I need more training. And I'm like, no, really you're ready. Yeah. <laughs> go, go right ahead. Yeah. And I know people who start practices right after graduation who are fantastic, you know, and, and do really good work. And, um, uh, in, in some ways, private practice is easier than working at an agency because of the uh, typical complexity of a private practice client. But anyway, um, so Rebecca, any final thoughts before you, I have an idea for when I come back. Okay. Um, I would like us to start a new segment where we take a TV psychologist and we pick apart a, a session. So um, yeah. things I want to do, people I want to look at are uh, Parker Posey playing, impersonating a psychiatrist on the new Lost in Space is amazing. Oh, is it good? It's terrifying. She's a psychopath. And so what she thinks therapists do, it's fantastic. And then there's this family session at a rehab center in the second season of This Is Us, where I think the family therapist is completely out of line, and I'd love to talk through that session with you. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Let's do it. All right. Um, were you the one who wanted to talk about The Expanse? I did want to talk about The Expanse. I loved it so much that I bought the third season 
so I could see it immediately. So Whoa. I didn't have to wait. Is it on? It's on Amazon, I yes. believe, right? It's on Sci Fi, and sci-fi. it did not get picked up for a third season or a fourth season. Right. And so I saw a rumor on Twitter that Netflix had picked it up, and I think it'd be perfect for Netflix because they clearly have a big enough budget to keep going. And Netflix, I think, has even stated that they want to specialize in sci-fi stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Which is kind of... They know their market, my God. Yeah. (laughs) People who like to stay in all day. So just a little bit about uh, The Expanse is that it's a a sci-fi show that's on Sci-Fi the channel. And it's... S-Y-F-Y. S-Y-F-Y, which is based on... The, a, a series of novels called The Expanse by James S.A. Corey. And it's the TV show is developed by Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby, who also worked on Children of Men. Terrifying and, movie. And Iron Man. Um, I, I liked it. Uh, I liked it a lot. The second season sort of lost me a little bit. The, the first season I was like totally riveted. Um, but... As soon as they started going into some of the more, I don't know, like bigger plot stuff, mm-hmm. I it it felt, I don't know, I just felt like, oh, is that where we're going? Like I, I and I don't want to spoil it, but it you know it gets, it gets kind of, you know, the first the first number of episodes, it's all kind of grounded in this mystery, but it's also kind of grounded in just a very possible future. Well, so the things that are super amazing about it, there's class, full-on class warfare in the future. Right. I don't think that's ever been addressed in any sci-fi show, at least. Maybe in some movies you get a sense of, like, the class divide. Right. But the way that they deal with it is so great. Right. Right. So they have these belters who are... Uh, the working class, these are the laborers who, who work in the asteroid belt and they are miners and people who work on outposts, you know, think of like the, the wild West or something in, in the American wild West. And it reminds me a lot of like any of those five corners movies, like movies about early New York, like that kind of dock worker port politics, what comes in? What goes out? What's the underground economy? Right, right. Because you got like gangsters and and the government and the police don't have that much power compared to the gangsters and stuff and and the capitalists and the workers are being exploited by the capitalists and the the people who live on Earth are generally pretty rich. Well, in the first season they're rich. In the second season, you start to meet the underclass oh. and you learn that some huge amount of the population is on the dole that there's no jobs for anybody. Mm. Um, and the population is like 30 million people and 30 billion, 30, they say, yeah, I said million, but I meant billion. Um, and you know, everything is polluted. And so there's just the class you meet at first is this very upper class politicians. Um, and then through, so there are colonists on Mars who are humanoid humans but their culture has been so separated that they have their own identity right and in the second season one of the martians comes to earth and kind of learns the hard truths Mm. yeah so the the uh so the the people men and women who work on in the asteroid belt are not only 
working in pretty bad conditions, like like miners and this kind of thing. But they also, because there's no, there's very little gravity um, in the in that part of the solar system, their bodies have been changed, and so they when they come to Earth, they they have a hard time living. They have a time breathing and walking because their muscle, their muscles have atrophied and their, um, bones have changed. And I think they've, they, they're elongated cause, cause you, you know, they know that when you're in the space station for a long time, you like, you grow a few inches cause you're just stretched out more cause gravity isn't like keeping you compact. Um, yeah, there's, there's all these elements of capitalism and oppression and politics and, and yeah, classism issues it's it's really interesting and it's probably and i'm not saying anything new here because this is what a lot of the a lot of our fellow sci-fi nerds are saying is that this is perhaps the most real sci-fi production that's ever been made yeah so it's the most racially diverse Hmm. it has the fewest gender divides there are women in all levels of power women of color Mm -hmm. Um, and then my favorite character, it slowly gets, it's pretty sure he's the first male former sex worker in a sci-fi show. He, meaning he was a sex worker in real life? He was a sex worker. Um, the character was a sex worker as oh. a child or as a young adult okay. and is now a laborer, uh, space renegade. Interesting. But the way that his history as a sex worker gets referred to as some of the best lines on TV. Like, it just makes me so, so happy. So that main guy that is sort of the brooding guy? The the muscle on the ship. The oh. guy that talks about being from Baltimore. I'm spacing. Oh, interesting. Atlas? I, I don't think name? I've gotten that part yet. Some geeky person is going to call me out on this. Um, Atlas. What's his name? I'm I don't kidding. know. But so, yeah, uh, it's super. So not only is it real in terms of diversity but in terms of the actual science it's also extremely real as well you know um i remember watching battlestar galactica the new one and loving how accurate it it was in terms of sci science fiction but even in that show they they tried to they cut corners and this kind of thing to to appease audiences you know this show it doesn't, especially at least the episodes I've seen, it doesn't explain things. It doesn't, no. it doesn't say like, so just to let you know, all those other TV shows and movies <laughs> you've watched have, have, have presented space in a wrong way. You know, there's, but in this, they're just like, look, you're, you're just, we're just going to show you what in all likelihood, what it would actually be like in space. And you're just going to have to live with it and be confused if you don't understand how physics works. Well, also, in the plot development, little things will happen that won't make any sense in the time. And then, like, three to five episodes later, it pans out, like, what that little clue was about. Mm. And so, in terms of storytelling, I'm just, like, totally wrapped in it because I catch those moments. Like, what the hell was that? And then several episodes later, it's put into perspective. Yeah, I mean, there's so many characters, or there's so many rich characters and that are not necessarily connected. And you're like, so, you know, and they sort of visit each one of these zones and these characters. And, and 
Yeah, it's a and the mystery, the heart of the whole plot mystery is 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 pretty complex and 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 laid out interestingly. Other things that they point out uh, or that they show us that is good sci-fi that um, I appreciate is that there is less protection from cosmic rays as soon as you get outside of Earth's um, protection from from rays, not only our magnetosphere, but our atmosphere. And so there's more cancer in space. You know, people who spend a lot of time traveling or in the asteroid belt have a lot more mutations and problems, you know, and they live shorter, shorter, uh, shorter time spans. Also, there's no sound in space. And, of course, this is one of the things that most people understand is that there's no sound in space. And when you watch Star Wars and you see a thing explode and they, and they give you, a, you know, an explosion sound, um, that doesn't make any sense that you would have that. And so um, in this and also I, I believe in Battlestar Galactica, they, they did a similar thing. Also, uh, go ahead. There's this amazing language, too, that the Belters speak. So this idea right. that all of these people have come off of Earth from all of these different zones. And so there's this crazy creole of, like, 50 different languages. Right. Um, which they – maybe they do translations the first episode. But after that, you just have to figure it out. And and I've seen a little segment of – they're like, yeah, that's what it would be like to be there. You wouldn't know right. what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Chinese and English and Russian and um, French and like right Spanish. And- yeah, and he puts some Hebrew in there. I, I got I geeked out on the linguist that put it together. And- Interesting. Another thing that they portray well is that it takes a really long time to travel in space. Mm-hmm. You know, which makes uh, sci-fi writing really hard. You know, and, and that's why all or most other sci-fi stuff, they have some kind of faster than light travel or some kind of instant travel thing. And, um, because if, you know, if you got to get from one planet to the next, uh, in real life, it would take forever. I mean, they're just existing in, in this story, uh, between earth and Jupiter or something. So, so it's just like, it's not even like all the way out to say Pluto or something, you know, it's just within a certain zone of of the solar system and uh, and travel travel takes a long time so you'll have like in the first season i remember there the main characters that get on that are sort of the renegades um from that ship that blew up there uh trying to get from they're trying to survive they're getting from point a to point b and there's like a few episodes where they're just traveling you know it's like they're trying to get from one asteroid to another asteroid or something and it's taking like several episodes mm-hmm. and weeks of, of actual travel time. And they have to think about oxygen and they have to think about heat and they have, to, and the other thing that they, that they do really well is when you, when you would travel in space, you know, unless you had some sort of warp drive, which, you know, people might not ever have is you accelerate toward the, the target. So you just turn your engines on and you just, you know, blast. And so as you're going toward the target, so if you're going from Earth to, Mar- to Mars, you're accelerating at a speed of 1G. So you always have gravity um, uh, to depend on. So as you're accelerating towards Mars, you're going faster and faster and faster and faster at a rate of 1G so that um, on the bottom side, there's always gravity, essentially. 
And then at a certain point, so that if you just turned off the engines, you'd, you'd, you'd crash into Mars because you're going like, by that point, like a, a hundred thousand miles an hour or something like that. So you have to slow down. And, but if you slow down too fast, you will become pancakes on the, so you turn the ship around and you decelerate at one G and then you again have gravity again. And so you're decelerating one G and that, but now you have gravity, I think on the, no, no, you have, anyway, it all works out. And so, so you accelerate and then you decelerate at one G and they, they explain that, or they, they depicted that in the show. You know, they're like, okay, we're, we're like, they even have like this cool language around it. It's like, okay, we're, we're doing a flip one G decel or something. And they, you see them lose gravity for a little bit. They turn it around and then they, um, and then, and then they also have a way of explaining how they would survive, um, high G acceleration that they have to inject that substance right. into their body so that it, um, makes it so that their body can withstand the high G's. It's a little bit of a hand wavy tech, like, well, in the future we'll have some kind of injection that can, but at the same time, like it's this super intense, painful thing that people yeah. don't necessarily survive. No, you know? but there's a lot of talking about hating space and hating earth, <laughs> yeah. hating Mars. Right. Um, the other awesome thing that this show has that only Battlestar Galactica had is nuclear weapons. Yes. So, you know, Star Wars, it's always like they basically have World War II technology in terms of weapons. You know, you have like these lasers that are, that are basically like, you know, a laser that are basically like projectile guns. And then you have these missiles, which are basically like torpedoes that you would have in World War II. But, you know, obviously, uh, even in World War II, we had devices that had massive destruction potential that are you know, fairly easy to construct once you have technology, especially f- space-faring peoples. And so in this show, they have nukes, and, and they show how easy it is mm-hmm. to program a missile that has a nuke on it, and you just, you just send it towards your target, and it, and it just has to get near the target, and goodbye target. You know what I mean? Like, there's no shield that's going to protect you. There's no evading it because the missile goes very fast, especially in space because there's no resistance and you don't have to decel that. You just have you can accelerate the entire time, and um, and and how horrific it is and how how just um, uh, how you'd have to think about. Okay, well, obviously they'd have nukes in the future, so how would they how would they deal with that mm-hmm. whole thing? You know what I mean. There's also been serious global warming, and New York is surrounded by very large walls. Oh, really? And the uh, Statue of Liberty has kind of a moat around it. It took me a couple episodes to figure out what that was. Interesting. Uh, But that's also, Blade Runner has that too, which is in the second one. There's this big wall around LA. Right, exactly. Um, Also, they... um, they, uh, the things in space move very fast in comparison to each other. So whenever I would, you watch Star Trek or whatever, and you see two ships that meet in space, it's like, again, it looks like World War II where you have two ships in the middle of the Pacific that just sort of meet. But actually two ships in space 
the chance of them moving in relation to each other's velocities is extremely unlikely. That it's much more likely that you wouldn't even see it. It would just blast past you at the you know ten times the speed of a bullet, and you'd be like, "What was that?" You know, because because you know things are moving pretty fast in space, and so they depict that as well. Then the last thing I'll say is that they make the ships look what ships might actually look like in the future. Because again, even with Battlestar Galactica, they make the ships look cool with wings and with uh, aerodynamics, you mm-hmm. know, and with you know smooth edges and stuff. And if you look at the space station, you know, the International Space Station, pretty lumpy. Yeah, the thing doesn't look sexy at all. It's just this very, you know, but it's practical because it, you don't need to make it aerodynamic. One and two. You can just expand it in any direction you want because it doesn't have to withstand uh, wind or anything. And so uh, their ships kind of look like that. You know, like the ships don't look sexy or cool. They Well, also when ships blow up, there's a whole nother second problem of the shrapnel. Right. And that's really interesting. I don't think I've ever seen a show that... Well, Gravity, the movie, kind of had a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Like, like in Star Wars, when something blows up, it's just like... Just this fireball, you know, but in gravity and in expanse, you realize like you've just expelled like billions of bullets that are now flying out, you know. Um, yeah, I, I just think that's uh, really great. Well, and the coolest invention for me is the gravity boots, that the way that they deal with these moments of not having gravity is they have kind of ruby slippers, but they're gigantic metal boots, and you, it seems that there's some kind of gravity device in the heel. So that's just a really, because in... I think it's magnetic. It's magnetic. Yeah. Because in Star Trek, it was like, how the hell? Right. Because it's, one, how do you film something that is constantly no gravity? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to film something that looks like that. And two, how do you tell stories when everyone's just kind of floating around? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, ah, we're on a, we're in a studio in LA. We'll just say we've invented some gravity machine, you know? Um, but there are a couple things that are a little uh, irksome to me is that the, the thrusters, um, so, and I like this to some extent, but it, in, in shows when they're trying to depict real uh, orientation of ships, you know, they, they have those little, they have those little thrusters that will kind of write the ship. Do you know, mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about? Like it'll be, you'll see this little pss, pss, this is the geekiest conversation I've ever yeah. had. I just want to say that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that's better than having a ship that just writes itself naturally, which, of course, it wouldn't do. But actually, the way that uh, we actually write ships in space is by using gyros that are inside oh. um, that are actually more efficient than using fuel to uh, orient a ship. Okay. Um, so, you know, there's that. Um, also, another thing that bothers me about this show that bothers me about a lot of sci-fi shows is that they have holograms that are, you know, like standing holograms mm-hmm. that are just like in the room, like you're watching a TV show or communicating with someone and there's just this hologram just suspended in midair, you know, 3D hologram, right? That is a very, very difficult thing to create that, um, that I 
my geek mind, I, I don't imagine You it, don't see it. I don't see that being at the same timeline as what they're proposing. How about the phone that's like a clear plastic bag? You think that's on the horizon? The which? The, their phones, they're like these little plastic um, clear. You think you think we're gonna get those? Yeah, I yeah. think having a there, it's like a clear piece of glass mm-hmm. that you can see through, but it also has things. Yeah, I think they actually have some of that technology now, but I actually don't like that because um, if you can see the background through your heads up, I mean, unless it's a heads up display that you're trying mm-hmm. to actually impose on an actual world, like Google Glass or whatever. Which um, never took off. Right. Um, I think I want an opaque piece of of glass because I want, you know, like, imagine if you, you had a book and every page was see-through. Mm-hmm. Like, it'd be a little harder to read, right? You want it, if you're trying to read something, it needs to have a, like, a opaque background. But it looks cooler to have a piece of glass. Um, the last... The gear thing, is cool in this show. Huh? The gear. Super cool. Um and, but the last piece of gear that I don't like is that the helmets that they wear. This is mm-hmm. this is this is uh, common to all sci-fi shows that are being filmed. Is you you notice that they have lights inside the helmet pointing at their face mm-hmm. because as you're filming, you're trying to film you know these astronauts in space. You have to be able to see their face through the glass, you know, and so. They design these helmets that the TV producers design these helmets with lights that are pointing toward the face. But imagine that. Imagine you have a helmet on that have lights shining into your eyes that are right next to your face. Like, mm-hmm. why would you have that? That would be awful, you know. And and of course, uh, they don't have that at the space station, you know, because it would be totally impractical. But you need it because you have these characters that you're filming that you need to be able to see their facial expressions. So So on the space station, when they do spacewalks, can you see their faces in those helmets? I only see like the reflection of the spaceship or no one, uh, because they don't have those lights that are pointing at their face. Cause that Mm -hmm. would be weird. Uh, I mean, imagine being in your car and you have lights just, you know, firing at your face. Uh, the other reason is because they have shields over their, uh, commonly over their, um, face because of the bright sunlight that is mm-hmm. just blasting you know the, the the sun isn't going through the atmosphere at that point and so it's just super intense and and could just fry your face and your, particularly your eyes you know if you don't have some kind of shield that's why like all those pictures of those guys walking on the moon right you don't see their like, faces yeah. yeah because their face would burn off if you know if they revealed that but anyway so those are just little nitpicky things, but uh, but overall, I I think everyone agrees. By far, this is the most accurate science fiction that's that's ever been made for TV. Um, and the characters are so deeply flawed. Yes, and I love a deeply flawed character. And interesting. And the main the main character, the guy who the the private investigator or mm-hmm. the investigator or whatever, like, I it's it's sort of like Game of Thrones. Actually, now I think about it, where it's just like I keep hoping he's going to get his break. And then it just gets worse and worse for him. Like he just keeps running into problems where, you know, th- everything's sort of stacked against him all the time. But he, but he's like that film noir guy where it's like, yeah, wow. he, it's very like, um, I feel like I'm watching the Maltese Falcon or something or right. not. Yeah. Like, uh, not the Maltese Falcon. Mochi. 
Is Moshe going to vomit or no, something? No, this is what happens when you have some long hairs. Oh. Um, it's, uh, it, yeah, he's very film noir, Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Drinks too much, loves women too much. Yeah. And he has a kind of a partner who is looking out for him or something. And what we, But he's young and naive. His partner is a rookie. Yeah. Trying too hard, right? What do you think of of the of the um, South? I think she's South Asian woman who's like the is she like the president? Of- no, she's. I have compared her to Henry Kissinger, like not an elected official, an appointed official that knows everything that's happening. That's the most powerful person in the room, but you only know that if you're on the inside. Okay. She progresses into the greatest character on the show and has the best speeches. Interesting. She also has the best jewelry. Yeah. She has fantastic. And out, all of her outfits yeah. are amazing. Fantastic and there's outfits. like three or four outfit changes a show. And her, her house is fantastic. Yes. Like whenever they, so whenever they go to earth, at least in the first season, they go to this woman who is a Henry Kissinger kind of character. And the contrast in the sets, you know, it's like these beautiful, huge homes with nature around uh, that I'm guessing is like relegated to the rich neighborhoods or Mm -hmm. something. And very fancy people with fancy things. And you go out to the belt and everything's real grungy and no one changes their clothes in the belt. Yeah. Uh, dirty and you know hardworking um but there's something about her accent that drives me nuts like like i i if i was the director i'd be like okay you know you have an accent just lean into the accent i feel like she's trying not to have an accent or something do you know what i'm saying i don't have that reaction to her like i like her power and <laughs> i like her the writing of her character or okay. something but her her voice is so deliberate. Well, I think it's for me it's representing her status as a politician. Oh. A very calculated. I mean, that's the impression I get over the episodes is that everything she says is so calculated. Yeah. And so cutting. Yeah. Um it kind of reminds me of um kind of New York society where there's just like this weird emphasis on things and things are very clipped. Oh, really? Interesting. Well, that makes more sense to me. Cause like, as I was watching, I was just like, I was like her, her, she's so deliberate yeah. in her words. And I'm like, that's an East coast thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's a great show. And, um, I also think I stopped watching it because I ran out of access to the season. So, yeah, um, that's why I purchased the next season. How do you purchase it? You buy it, like like on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Or, okay, so you buy it on Amazon, and then you have to wait. It's like olden times. Like you get one episode. I'm watching it almost in real time as it comes out on Sci-Fi. Right? Yeah, yeah. I did that with the Americans with the fifth mm. with the fifth season. So mm-hmm. I I discover the. Amer- the Americans and watched on Amazon uh, seasons one through four at, at, you know, could binge. And then, um, and then season five started and I could only watch one episode a week. I know it's terrifying. Well, I had to stop watching the Americans because someone got murdered every episode in such a personal, brutal way. It's so brutal. I also had to watch, stop watching Jessica Jones because 
I was going to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> yeah, that show, the first, the, I don't know if it gets worse or better, but the, the first two episodes, I was like, I feel Dirty. really terrible. <laughs> like I had nightmares. I it, was like, I, this is too much. Maybe it, maybe it's bad for therapists to watch because it's, it, you know, it, it depicts PTSD and sexual assault and like all sorts of really horrible things. And I wonder if that's an element of that show. Yeah, it got to me. When it, I think I went on to like, um, oh, Kimmy Schmidt or something. <laughs> yeah. just like, which is also about PTSD and amazing. But, that's a therapist. We should talk about Tina Fey's character on that show. Oh, yeah. Therapist the, by day, drunkard by night. Yeah, that's a hilarious character, yeah. All right, Rebecca, well, next time we, I talk to you, you'll be this Mediterranean world traveler. Yes, I'll probably be so thankful to be wearing different clothes than I wore for two weeks or two months nonstop. How so. many outfits are you bringing? I'm doing the two dresses, two skirts, two pants, two pairs of shorts, and eight shirts. Eight shirts. So is that like eight outfits? Am I hearing? Eight? Yeah. Because it's going to be like, warm, so you, you, can, yeah. you can wear any of those things, right? Yeah. So eight outfits. Yeah, I mean, you can do laundry over there. Yes. Or just laundry. go down to the Mediterranean. <laughs> In the, bathe in myself the, in the blue waters oh, 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 oh. it sounds like a movie um yeah there's uh it's gonna be hot i have been to israel in august so i know this level of heat it's the kind of culture where like you know i imagine you sleep from 11 to f- 11 a.m to 4 p.m and then go back yeah. out in it yeah we have to talk about camp Tentries for oh. just two seconds so wait a second. I want to introduce this. Yeah. Introduce this. Yeah. I got to give Kirk a new experience. I got to introduce Kirk to something that he thought was beautiful and life affirming, and to watch it, the delight on his face through the whole evening was. It was one of those great experiences where you get to give you get to treat your friend to something that they didn't know about, and you get to show it to them. I didn't know you felt that way. I felt that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell us about Camp Tentries. So Camp Tentries has been around for 20 years, and it began as a camp for kids of GLBTQ parents, where those kids could go and just be normal. And it's also really affirming of queer culture, and it's now extended to also be a camp for GLBTQ kids. They've got at least two summer sessions. And so they... it started out for parents? It started out for the kids. Oh, it started out for the kids, okay. And they now have a thing for the parents. They have a family weekend, I okay. think, for younger kids and their parents. And then they also have, I think, a like a midwinter break session now as well. But it is super, you know, just imagine a camp for teens and younger kids where you can be your freakiest, queerest, fairiest, drag queeniest butchiest, non-conformingest self. Yeah, that was the magic that really touched me, was that, was to think about how in our society you have people who can't be themselves. And that's getting better, but it's still pretty bad. And how bad it must, you know, it was 20 years ago. And to think about a camp where... Everyone can just be who they want to be and and change who they want to be. Right. They, right. Try that on. If you want to try something else on, go try that on. Right. Right. Exactly. 
and how um, beautiful that is to me in terms of freedom and um, fighting back against society, but also bittersweet because camp has to end and they mm-hmm. have to go back home, you know? It, it's, um, but of course, it's a good thing it exists, you know? <laughs> How many kids go to the campus? You know, I don't. I think they don't give out numbers. There's a lot of confidentiality connected to right. this camp, but right. I know tons of people that have gone or sent their kids. They don't even say where it is, right? No. Yeah. So uh, it was a fundraising dinner uh, mm-hmm. auction for gay, uh, gay, 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 gay. Yeah. It was gay. Yeah. Uh, I asked you because I got the invitation and I the the day before and I looked at it and it said like dress in your queerest outfit. (laughs) And I thought, Oh, I don't think I have a queer outfit. And so I texted you and I was like, do I need to dress up for this? You know, cause I have a suit, but you know, and you're like, well, you know, do you have, uh, how'd you word it? I said, do you have a fun tie and a fun pocket square? Yeah. By the way, I'm going black on black and you showed up black on black, which made, and in a fun tie with a fun pocket square. Right. So I immediately went to Nordstrom and, or the next day and tried to find the most fun uh, tie and pocket square. Because I've, I've never owned a pocket square in my life. Uh, and I have a lot of ties. And I looked at them before going to Nordstrom. But I was like, oh, I don't think any of these are going to cut it. And so I bought a, a sort of... Uh, kind of a pink paisley. Yeah, a dusty pink paisley uh, tie that i really love by the way uh, it's a beautiful tie and a uh dusty pink pocket swear and two minutes before getting into my lift to co- to come downtown i had to google how to put a pocket square <laughs> there's many options there's many options and i went with the funnest option oh which was the floof i think they call it uh but yeah it was this beautiful night and there was all these. And we had fun. Yeah. And we had some drinks, and there was all this entertainment, and there were things that we were auctioning, and I bought a raffle ticket. And so I have to tell you so I, I think I told you this night, but so I go downstairs where all the silent auctions are, mm-hmm. and, and there's all these fun things, and I'm bidding on something. And you, you got something. I went often at a silent auction, there'll be an option like if you just want to buy it pay this amount right and there was a print i wish i knew the name of the artist but it's c3po on his belly in the grass daydreaming and i was like this is so me because when i was a kid everybody loved r2d2 and so because i was jewish and i had to pick the underdog i was like no i like c3po best which i don't think i really did but i do think (laughs) he's become a really endearing character through all the movies he has many of the best lines so this idea is like, what does C-3PO do on his downtime while well, he lies on his belly and daydreams in the grass? So I just, I bought it. It was 40 bucks just to buy it. I did not know that backstory between you and C-3PO. Now I know what I'm going to get you for Christmas <laughs> or for some other, your birthday. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I'm going around at the different silent auction. And then I go into this other room and there's this, these, all these big ticket items like, you know, uh, which I'm, I'm like, oh, these must be for the regular auction when we start the regular auction. And then there's these kids walking around selling raffle tickets. And one kid walks up to me and he's like, 
would you like to buy a raffle ticket for a hundred dollars? And I was like, a hundred bucks. Are you kidding me? Like, like, Oh no, I'm okay. And then the kid walks away and I'm thinking, wait, it couldn't be a hundred dollars for a raffle ticket. That's it must, he must mean a raffle ticket to win a hundred dollars. You know, that, that's what I thought. So that, so the next kids that came up to me and asked, would you like to buy a raffle ticket? I, I said, so surely these tickets are not, you're not selling them for a hundred dollars. Right. And they were like, no, we are selling them for, and I'm like, so why? You know, they're like, well, you, you get to the way they explained it to me. I walked away thinking that everything in the other room, the big ticket items were given out to all the lottery or to all the raffle ticket people. So, and I was like, well, how many of these tickets have you sold? And they're like, oh, maybe like 10. And I'm like, so if I buy a ticket, I'm guaranteed to win one of those, maybe two of those things in the other room. And I thought, well, that's worth it. I'll, I'll, I'll pay a hundred bucks to guarantee I get one of those big tickets. You know, they had like plane tickets. They had plane tickets. They had, you know, vacations. They had, um, you know, various different things that were like, you know, $500 value, $2,000 value. And so I bought the ticket thinking everyone who buys a raffle ticket is going to get something unless suddenly they, they sell like 500 tickets and then only 30 of us are going to get something. And so I go upstairs to the main auction thinking, well, sh- yeah, I'm going to win something because there's only so many raffle tickets. There's only, there's only so many things that they're giving out. And so they do the, they do the raffle ticket. You were there. And they pull, they pull a number out. And it's not my number. It's someone else's number. And no, it's nobody's number. No one is claiming it. No one is claiming it. And, and they're really hammering away. They're like, well... Go to the registration, figure out who this person is. You know, they, they, they waited a good 10 minutes to, to really make sure they could try to find this An person. An auction buzzkill. Yeah. And you could really tell like, oh, they're pretty bummed out that, that someone's going to be really disappointed that they didn't win. But in my head, I'm like, well, just re- they'll get whatever isn't claimed. You know what I mean? Like, who cares? So then they so then they go on and they're like, okay, well go on and they and they put their hand in the thing and they pull out my number. Now watching Kirk's face during this thing, they're like, two, and he's like, Yes. Yeah. And then they said zero. And he was like, Oh and then was it four? four. Yeah. And the look on your face, because you told us you were going to win, but I didn't understand that you didn't understand the premise of what was going on. Right. So the real premise is that you buy this hundred dollar ticket. And if your number gets called, you get to pick any of the high ticket items right. without having to go through the regular auction process. Right. You don't, and, and people are bidding, you know, thousands, things are going for thousands of dollars. Yeah. And so you base for a hundred dollars, you basically get thousands of dollars worth of something. And I, so when I won, I was like, oh, great. But I'm like, well, this just means I get a pick first. That's all that I thought. I was like, well, so I didn't think it was very special. I thought it was cool that I won first and I get to pick, I get a, I get the first pick, but I didn't realize that I'm the only winner. Like I'm, I'm the, I'm the only person who won. And it didn't occur to me until, I don't know, like an hour later or something. I'm like, wait, how come they're not pulling out any more of those raffle tickets? And you or someone else said, because they only pull one number out. That's you- why it's called a golden ticket, Kirk. <laughs> 
did you not get that famous movie reference? There's only one. Well, the other golden dumb, ticket. Well, the other totally dumb thing about me was, even though I was sure I was going to win, which I wasn't uh, necessarily going to win for sure, I hadn't. I hadn't chosen what I. I didn't realize that. I needed to pick right there on stage. Like they, so this, so what do you want? So Kirk, just imagine Kirk getting accosted by a drag queen at this point. He's like doing his best, but there was a lot of, there was a lot going on. Yeah. So they're all like, pick something. And I'm like, um, what? Like, like I just didn't understand the, I was so just dumb and like out of my element that, uh, and I just thought of the first thing that this came to mind. This was Kirk's first time at the rodeo. Yeah, sure. apparently. <laughs> and so I picked uh, Treehouse. Uh, which is what you wanted. Which is what I wanted, but I hadn't thought of... It was basically the first thing that came to my head, mm-hmm. you know, and which was lucky because it probably would have been the one I would have chosen anyway. In Washington State and maybe other places, there's different outfits where they build these elaborate treehouses that, that are like cabins up in the trees and... And they all have different looks to them, and you can stay in them. And I've always wanted to stay in them. I've I've gone to the website, but it's always been so expensive. It's like hundreds of dollars a night, you know. And it's just like, you know, you got to stay there at least two nights. Do you really want to spend like a thousand dollars, you know, staying in just a just a treehouse? Like it just seemed excessive, you know. But for a hundred dollar raffle ticket, that's what it's I got. Well worth it. Yeah. So, and then um, I also won a burlesque lesson. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm going to learn how to do burlesque. I think this will be an excellent time for you. Yeah. I can't wait to learn your burlesque name. So, the burlesque name? Yeah. Oh, like like Mr. something or Miss... What's the name of the sandwich with the egg on top when your dad cooked a hamburger? It's rice. Hamburger egg on top. Oh, well, in American, you would call it a Salisbury steak, but in Hapa, you would you would call it Loco Moco. That is your burlesque name. Loco you Moco. are Mr. Loco Moco. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, burger. Uh, I got rice foundation, burger <laughs> on top, smothered in gravy with an egg on top. <laughs> <laughs> Japanese Americans love to put an egg on top. I know. Japanese, it's always like a, just always an egg. Like <laughs> just just top it off with an egg. That'll that'll make everything better. Um, but uh, uh, so listeners out there, if you want to donate to this wonderful op- uh, yeah. organization, Camp Ten Trees. Camp Ten Trees. People come from all over the country to go to it. Yeah, and your donations pay for a very humble organization that. Uh, puts, I'm guessing, the majority of those funds towards the kids um, and making it so kids can attend for free, essentially. Mm-hmm. And No kid is turned away from that camp. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. They've never turned anyone away. And they also have, like, whole siblings, like, groups. Mm-hmm. Like, they, there were three siblings who talked on, on the stage. They... Uh, so they're uh, they get to go with their younger siblings and stuff and and so uh it's it was really special to see all that so yeah camp camp potentries and 
I think, Rebecca, we have started a new tradition. I think this is going to be our thing. I'm so excited because we haven't had a thing. Yeah. And I can't get in on the other things. Yeah. So this is going to be our thing. You got a karaoke guy. I mean, I'm never going to oh, really? move in on that thing. Well, you're going to be at our live show. No, because I'm away. Oh, you're going to be away all the way until then? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Welcome to my life. When do you get back? Oh. Late August or something? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that well, you'll be at the next one. You'll be at the yes. el, the eleven year one. Yeah. Okay. This one goes to eleven. That's yeah. That's a movie reference. That is a movie reference. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for joining me, Rebecca. It's always a pleasure. I had to come one last time before I leave the United States of America. Yeah. Ooh, that'll be nice. You won't have to deal with any American. I won't politics. be able to read a newspaper for seventy two days. When I traveled in Europe, I made a whole backstory that I was a Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I told you this. So uh, my son is at an American, an English-speaking school in Barcelona right now. And he said that when a new kid shows up, all the kids gather around and they say, don't speak. We're going to try and guess where you're from. Oh, no. And they guessed that he was Russian, which is interesting because genetically I'm half Russian, half Polish, and his donor is German. He looks like he could be Russian a little bit, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, I don't know if it's better to be tagged as an American or a Russian, but he didn't get tagged as an American. Yeah. I I think that's a win. That felt like a win to me. That felt like a parenting win. Definitely a win. (laughs) I mean, if they'd gather around and say, oh, definitely American. Yeah. I mean, that's a big mom fail at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And then, well, he picked up on the metrosexual stuff. I guess everything in Spain is super tight, 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 tight. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So are you going to tell people you're from Merca when people ask? Marca. I wonder if you say if you're from Seattle, it's any better. But I do, I have heard that they think Trump's an idiot and they think we all voted for him. Yeah. So I do feel like it's important. I'll need to learn how to say three million votes in like five or six different languages. Yeah. I'm from Seattle, which uh, 85% of our city voted for the other person. <laughs> um, uh, something like that. I, and I, I, I was shocked by that, actually, because in my head, I always just figured like, well, I don't know. Half of every city is Republican, mm-hmm. you know, or or at at best you're going to be. Like but this 50- is not a re- average Republican candidate. I mean, the idea that yeah. like you could have sexually assaulted women very recently and be quite public and not ashamed about it and get elected and have no, we're, we're, we, uh, he's not a very Seattle candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. And when I so when I went to Europe, I um, had this Canadian backstory ready to go, but never really had to use it. And and the occasional moments when people actually asked, I was just like, eh, "Fuck it, yeah, I'm from America." <laughs> and one one uh, taxi driver in Paris was like, "So um, so Americans hate French people, right?" And I'm like, no, you know, I, cause I thought French people were delightful and everyone I met who actually has been to France are always like that. The stereotype that French people are assholes is, is not true. And now uh, that we have, we're surrounded by such assholes. They probably doesn't seem like such yeah, assholes. Right. 
And so I said, no, 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 we, we don't, I don't think that anyway. He's like, are you, uh, you're probably just, you're probably just saying that like Americans hate, they really do hate French people, right? They really hate French people. I'm like, no, no, no. And he's like, ah, you're just, you're just being nice. And I just thought, oh man. Um, anyway, so, so what's your wish for me on my trip? Let's I wish that you have a transformational experience. I wish you bond with your family. I'm hmm. sure that'll happen. I wish you have at least one moment where you're truly connecting with the history of our race or our, you know, the human race, the, cause they're so ancient, these, these locations and actual stone masonry that you can touch that were put there thousands of years ago and the people who have come through there and the, the stories and the, I mean, of course, Seattle has native American stories, but that there's, there's not, a, there's not physical evidence of it, you know, around. And, um, that's how I feel when I, you know, now that you're listening to this podcast, you know, it's just like those, those people actually were there, mm-hmm. you know, just to think about that emperor, walked these streets he planted cabbage right here right and how many people are going to be geeky enough to know that this used to be a cabbage plantation right yeah well you got to get a cabbage dish when you're there (laughs) i wonder if they're not known the croatians aren't known for cabbage but I'll, i'll i'll look yeah i like cabbage I like cabbage too. I like a good slaw. I like it raw. Like I'll eat cabbage leaves. Yeah, gets a bad rap sometimes. It's very good for you. Yeah, I mean it's it's often accompanied in Kahlua pork, for example. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so have a great trip. Thank you, Mochi. I hope survives with whoever. She's going to be with a lovely family. Okay. And uh, please take care of yourself out there because. Why should people take care of themselves? Uh, You want to travel the world one day.